You know, let's talk about the de-aging. First of all, I'm having it done next week, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Let me but, know how it goes, because I'm, I'm right behind you. <laughs> but it's it's um it is convincing within the film, and it's not as creepy as I thought it might be. And whatever metaphysical reservations I had about it, I sort of put on the shelf along with Indy's hat, just put it aside. And where where it bothered me actually wasn't so much that it was done as that it was when I say overdone, by that I mean in terms of the running time. That opening prologue where you see him back in see the, the story opens nineteen forty. So it's very much younger Nazis and younger indie and the de-aging process. And and actually, so, there's an action sequence on a train and so on. That works really well. However, really well. it does go on too long. There's too much of that. If you're going to have it at all, and that's a whole argument, so stuff shouldn't even have it. But if you're going to have it, keep it to 10 or 15 minutes. Hello, and welcome to At the Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the much-anticipated Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and a movie called Past Lives. And we're going to start with Indy. Now, Mike, there have been, this is the fifth one. Before we talk about how well the movie, you know, achieved its goals, what do you think the new indie movie needed to be? Well, I've taken a strong interest in this series because over the years I've interviewed Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford and even Karen Allen. So in, in this and other series, you know, I've really had an interest in them. What strikes me is if you think about the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all the way back in 1981, now we're up to number five, which seems like it should be the final one. But going back to 1981, what was striking about the film then was it really followed through on a template that Spielberg, as much as anyone, invented, and namely a movie that's like a theme park ride. And at the time, it still had that sort of novelty value. And whether you liked it or didn't like it, it was something striking in terms of how movies were being constructed. And, and of course, Spielberg's had the serious hat and the silly hat. This is, you know, the, the silly hat of just putting the, the moviegoer on that ride. And, and it worked very well there. What's the burden here? And I think it is a little bit of a burden is uh, or responsibility, depending on how you want to phrase things. Now that we're up to number five, you got to think about this. I mean, you know, all these years later, Harrison Ford is 80 years old and, you know, he's still an action hero to the advantage of this film, to its credit. In one sense, it tries to it tries to hide that or mask that in that. And we'll talk more about this. There's some de-aging where you see it as a much younger man. But you know what? That's really like the prologue type material. For the bulk of the film, he is clearly an, an older man. And although the film is very careful in the framing and editing, I mean, how much running can you do? How much fist fighting and so on? It's convincing. I mean, within those obvious limitations, I mean, he still can, you know, uh, when I talk with Harrison Ford, he was a grumpy young man. Now he's a grumpy old man. And he has that curmudgeonly value, if you will. He's really ideal for a role like this one. So all things considered, he really goes out on a high note here. Uh, and it's really, you know, quite striking how well he, he plays this. But in terms of your, your question, which I knew after about 20 minutes, I'd double back on. <laughs> in terms of your question, <laughs> the burden or the responsibility here is, well, you know, where do you go from here after all these years? Or how do you end it, assuming this is the end for it? So, uh, you know, number one, I, I think, you know, having him so gracefully, if you will, play the role I think is a big plus here. And I think people who saw the first film will really appreciate that in terms of he's still hanging in there, right? And, and the adventures are still adventurous. They're, they're more familiar in the sense that we've been on a lot of theme park rides by now, but, but it still works, you know? And some of the sequences are really, really a lot of fun to, to watch. But uh, again, in terms of what I call the burden here is because of that history for the series, there's almost the sense for me of checking boxes, you know, in terms of certain characters and themes. And yes, each of the films will have to have a, a whatchamacallit, a, a gizmo that, that you got to get, you know, it's it's some you know, sacred relic 
psychedelic or this or that. In this case, it really is quite literally a time machine going all the way back to Archimedes. And so, you know, that's a given here. One of the givens that I think at best is a a mixed blessing is who are the villains going to be? Now, after Spielberg made Schindler's List in 1993, he, Spielberg, said that he was starting to have ambivalent feelings uh, about using Nazis as what he called Saturday matinee villains. You know, because, you know, that's the go to, isn't it? You know, if you want a bad guy, villain, just put a Nazi uniform on the guy and there you go, ready made. But, you know, after doing such a serious film about the Holocaust, he thought, you know, do I want to use like popcorn movie material and, and have Nazis in it? Well, the deal is, and, and I, I have mixed to negative feelings about this, actually. Although Spielberg did not direct this film that we're talking about, James Mangold did, he and George Lucas are the executive producers. So ultimately, they're still the bosses. It's their material creatively. So even though he'd expressed those reservations about using Nazis as villains and, and said this more than 20 years ago, again, they've checked that box. They've hit that button. Who's Who are the villains here? It's the Nazis again. And, and again, within the story, it works reasonably well. But there, for me, there's an overly familiar quality. It's like, okay, you hit that box. We know they're bad guys. And one reason why that kind of wears thin or even grates on me a bit, uh, beyond any moral reservations, just simply as a moviegoer, is that the film has a running time of around two and a half hours. And I just think after a while, I want to get off the ride. I, I, it's like so many movies now where it just goes on longer than it needs to. So as usual, I've gone on longer than I needed to. So let me turn <laughs> it back over to you. You've brought up so many things. So let me let me try to address all of them. It is a theme park ride. That is a really good way of describing it. And of course, I saw this in Screen X. You know, I, I should actually be getting a kickback from them because I can't <laughs> have, I always like it better when I see it in Screen X. And that's why I opened by asking you what you thought it was meant to be. Because if it's meant to be a thrill ride, you need to see it in Screen X when you're in the movie. And I thought those scenes were fun. And I didn't expect anything more than, well, let's just you know, take another trip to like you go to Disney, you've already been on the ride, you know exactly what's going to be the ride's going to be all about, but you're anticipating, you're looking forward to it. And then you at the end, you know, figure out whether you want to go on it again, or kind of done with that ride. And what I think was kind of well done, I agree with you, I think, based on what you said, what's kind of a good idea is even Indiana Jones gets older. This isn't like the Marvel universe where you only see people in their prime. And then they disappear if, you know, they, they never age. I mean, this was an opportunity to show an aging star. And in that respect, I think they did a really good job with that. I mean, it is convincing. And in terms of the de-aging, I've seen a lot of criticism of it online. I thought it was pretty cool. I, the fact that we can do it at all is amazing. But I'm not sure it was really necessary. I think they could have gone with a more, you know, grizzled, curmudgeon, craggy Indiana Jones. You know, let's talk about the de-aging. First of all, I'm having it done next week, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Let me <laughs> but, know how it goes, because I'm, I'm right behind you. <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it is convincing within the film, and it's not as creepy as I thought it might be. And whatever metaphysical reservations I had about it, I sort of put on the shelf along with Indy's hat, just put it aside. And where, where it bothered me, actually, wasn't so much that it was done as that it was, when I say overdone, by that I mean in terms of the running time. That opening prologue where you see him back in, see, the, the story opens 1944, so it's very much younger Nazis and younger Indy and the de-aging process. And, and actually, so, there's an action sequence on a train and so on. That works really well. However, really well. it does go on too long. There's too much of that. If you're going to have it at all, and that's a whole argument, so stuff should even have it. But if you're going to have it, keep it to 10 or 15 minutes, you know, and just do that because the film then is going to jump from 1944 
to its present day, which is 1969. The actual edit's really sweet, actually, to see Indy waking up in 1969, you know, the flower power all around him, his apartment, he's, you know, the psychedelic music and so on. And where am I kind of feeling? It's a new, a new universe for him. But anyway, you know, it just, it, it drags on in that opening section. And I mean, my personal preference would be maybe not to have that, that prologue material at all. But if you're going to have it, you know, keep it terse. And then jump to the present, because that would be a real jump cut in that sense, you know, like just a few minutes of of World War II and then bam, here we are in, in its present day. So that's a reservation I had. But Marie, I agree with you that, you know, even though I have quibbles about all this, it really was kind of fun to see him as a young guy, you know, running down a train and so on. And then and then suddenly here's this old guy having trouble getting out of bed. I mean, he gets out of bed and people talk about the sequence and they should. He's only wearing his boxer shorts, right? And, and so if you have the question of, well, for Indy, you know, briefs or boxers, it's boxers. And, and and thank goodness at age 80, you know, it's boxers. So so the thing is, like, when he gets out, you think, hey, that's not bad looking for 80, right? So we all sort of thought that watching it. Now, that's not bad for 80. But the fact that again all joking aside the fact that he's showing you an older man i mean and the film is so literal minded about that i appreciated that we're not trying to mask that we're not de-aging anything there we're if anything aging him and showing that so it works really well there also in terms of the aging process i'm not going to spoil whatsoever the concluding section of the film but it's no secret at this point that karen allen is in the film uh, and, and very early in the film, you see a quick reference to the fact that, that Indy and Marion are divorced. You know, it flies by, but it's there. But, but you know, you can assume that you're going to see her at some point. So anyway, that that's as much of a spoiler as I'll, I'll verge on. But by the end of the film, and again, without giving away the final few scenes, I found them incredibly moving. I thought it was a really beautiful finale to the film, because this doubles back on your, your opening question all those minutes ago of, you know, what, what's the burden or what, what does this film need to do? You need to have the Karen Allen and Harrison Ford characters connect again. And when they do in the film, I was so moved by that. And it's at that personal level of having, you know, interviewed the actors, sure. But beyond that, as a moviegoer, that's a satisfaction. We want to see the two of them together again. And again, I'm, I'm thinking, but not verbalizing individual shots, even at the end of the film. It's really beautifully made in, in those final few scenes. And even though so much of it is like silly and hokum and meant to be, right? There's genuine feeling in places. And at the end of the film, I thought, boy, if this is the last one in the series, and honestly, I hope it is, if it's the last one, what a sweet way to go out. It's really a wonderful ending. I also liked it for all the reasons that you that you mentioned. I will say that the um, comic book violence of it, you know, just the, like that sort of feel to it, that's what made me wonder who the movie was for, because I could see why having an older Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, and Karen Allen speaks to you and me, you know, because we saw the first movies back in the day. So to us... I think there's something very nice about seeing an older Indiana Jones. And then when you get to see Karen Allen, it's like, oh, old friends. But for the younger people coming in to see this movie, how do you think that landed for them? Because, you know, you want an evergreen audience. You can't just depend on people who knew Indiana Jones back in the day to see what he's up to now. Thank you so much for asking that question, because the whole time I was watching the movie, that question recurred for me. You and I are the target demographic, to put it in clinical terms, right? We saw the first Raiders of the Lost Ark. We grew up with that. Every so often we had another installment. And yes, how wonderful to see Harrison Ford and Karen Allen showing their years, but also showing their resilience. Uh, she still has the widest eyes. I don't know how, mm-hmm. she, how she achieves this, but she, she has a, a great face on screen. But anyway, to have them together again uh, inherently is, is, has real sentimental value for us, as we've been saying. But as I watched the film, I kept thinking, yeah, but what if I were a a 15-year-old kid 
you know, going to the movies, you know, I would get the thrill park. I would get that kind of, you know, theme park ride. It has enough action adventure to hold me there. But on the level of character, do I want to watch some 80 year old guy running around? (laughs) You know, I'm putting it crudely because I think if I were like, I would have been crude like that at 15 or so. Like, is this my idea of a good time? Wouldn't I want to see a character who's obviously younger, but more relatable? Know what I'm getting at? Like if I didn't grow up watching the earlier films and I'm coming to it cold, and just watching it as a movie, it'll hold my interest. It's got plenty of bow, pam, wow, you know, on a train, shooting at Nazis, all that. But what? But when you then think about the character dynamics of Harrison Ford and Karen Allen and, and some of the others, at, at that level, um, I'm not sure it's going to grab a, a younger audience. And so um, a, a, f- ultimately, a short answer to your question would be, I think older viewers will appreciate the film more. I think younger viewers may or may not. And that's going to vary because what if you're, you're a 50, that pervert, I shouldn't pick on 15 year old kids, I was one. But if you grew up in a household where you, you sat down with your parents and watched the earlier films, you know, if you had that shared experience in a way, then you, you can bring some of that with you as well. But if you're just going to the movies on a weekend to see the latest uh, tentpole picture, the latest big action picture, how's this going to hold up? with, let's say, any number of superhero movies. Because, Marie, you made the point earlier that, you know what, heroes, villains, whatever, they don't age. <laughs> and those films, they, they come back in like the fifth installment, but they still look the same, right? And, and, and either it's the same actor or they hand off to another young actor. So I think this is an interesting demographic question. Will younger viewers, and, you know, we'll have to ask our students that in terms of, you know, how they responded to it as a film. But I think even those who, this is, you know, theoretical on my point, even those who say they like it, I don't think they could possibly like it as much as we would because that there, it's part of that 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 growing up experience if you saw it back in the day and seeing them now even if you sat down with your parents and watched it growing up that's not quite the same as having seen it yourself uh, first run so i think there's no getting around that and i think that may be one reason why in a commercial sense it, it would make sense to have this as the swan song for for the indy jones series i think it would be a mistake to bring indy back you know li- living in an assisted living facility or something you know i don't mean like don't milk it anymore please and, and when it goes out on that strong note that I mentioned earlier, yes, we still have John Williams writing the music. You know what I mean? The team is still there. Let the team retire, if you will, or go on to other projects on that kind of high note or grace note. And, you know, the John Williams score, I don't think can be criticized at all. It's, I think, underpins the whole movie in a really, really nice way. And, you know, you bring up something really good to uh, respond to, Mike, in terms of the movies that are put out today where you just replace somebody. And I'm thinking of the Spider-Man series where, you know what, maybe maybe some people are going to like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. But if not, you know, maybe they'll like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. But if not, you know, they've got several people waiting in the wings to capture that younger audience, which is a strategic win. And you know what? And, and this is being cynical, but you can even have a, you know, a, a sequel in which, you know, all of them show up, right? We've been <laughs> yes. that now, right? But it's not just replacing them. It's just like putting them on the shelf and then having like, because we have all this time travel stuff now, which is certainly part of the Indy Jones film, but the superhero movies are full of it, the multiversing. Uh, you know, nobody goes away forever there. You can bring them back, if you will. But when they come back, they, they haven't aged in the interim, right? They, they haven't grown up. And they just maybe they took off the Spider-Man outfit for a little while, but they put it back on and they look basically the same. But time will tell there, because after all, the, the current superhero movies, we're talking the last 10 to 15 years, basically, right? So because those are still doing so well commercially, presumably you're not going to pull the plug on something like that. So they could simply continue in the way you indicated, just put a younger actor in the role. 
but maybe they themselves will be subjected to what is what might be called the Indy Jones syndrome, that after 20 or 30 years, what do you do? Well, maybe you show them waking up as, you know, Andrew Garfield wakes up in the morning only in his boxer shorts, and he's now a 60-year-old man, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to wish that on us, but it could happen, right? That is that is a script in somebody's bottom drawer, even as we speak. But, you know, speaking of that, you know, Indiana Jones is kind of a superhero. He just doesn't have like supernatural powers. It's sort of a before the Marvel universe kind of took over. This is the kind of film you would make about somebody who's larger than life and can get into these fist fights and, you know, all of this great CGI work. But in terms of that idea, you know, what was a missed opportunity is to set up, you know, son of Indiana Jones. Right. And you know what would have been just the best cameo to end it with would have been that you find out who it is and you like he turns around and it's Adam Driver. Um, that, well, would, that would have been a great Harrison joke, Harrison Ford joke. I guess so, but maybe we should keep that one in the bottom drawer. <laughs> <laughs> it's right next to Andrew Garfield wakes up at 80 in his boxer shirt. <laughs> Two great scripts, you know, waiting to happen. All right, Mike, I think it's time for us to talk about our second movie, which is Past Lives. Which, by the way, I had to go all the way to Arundel Mills to see this. This was another one of those situations where really cool movie is out, you know, read stuff about it. Can't find it in my own hometown. Had to actually go a little bit further out. What a reward. I loved this movie, Mike. What was, what did you think? Well, in my case, I only had to walk to my neighborhood movie theater, the Charles Theater. And so it was a shorter commute for me. I like the film a lot. And just to set it up for our audience a bit, it's a Korean film, Past Lives. It's the directorial debut of Celine Song, who is multi-hyphenate in various ways. She's a playwright to begin with, but also she's Korean, Canadian, and American. And the film plays off of that in the sense that it really is traveling between cultures. And it also ironically involves some time travel of its own, if you will. The film opens in the present day and then flashes back 24 years. And then it moves ahead like, okay, 12 years later, and then 12 years after that. What's it tracking over time? There's a childhood uh, friendship, a kind of romantic friendship as kids will have sometimes, but never a full-blown boyfriend-girlfriend situation. So without spoiling anything within the storyline, what happens to these characters? Where do they live? How do they relate? It's going to track them over that extended period of time in their relationships. And there are these gaps where they don't have any contact at all. So what's it like to reconnect with someone? Are you still just friends? Could be more than that. What I liked so much about the film was that it was about ordinary people and, and it just really tracked daily lives. And, and that can be fascinating and, and how diligent it was in tracking those lives. And what struck me and really moved me quite a bit was I liked it well enough as I was watching it, but it has a kind of incremental power. As it went along, I was like really, really invested in it. So by the final half hour or so, I was just mesmerized by it. And one reason was, and again, this verges on a spoiler, I realized, but as, as you go from Korea to the United States, to New York and so on, the fact that, you know, if, if one of the characters is now married, how, how is that character going to relate to the other childhood friend? And those scenes involving the married couple and, 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 and the other character, just simple, basic, like restaurant scenes, what I call restaurant etiquette, ordering off the menu, going to the restroom so that, you know, one person's away, the other two still there. And again, I'm being very careful not to even give you character names or, or exact connections here. But, but those scenes across the dinner table, I'll call them that, are really so well observed in terms of pe basically nice people 
trying to be nice to each other, but they're not entirely sure of their own feelings. Well, like, it's nice to see you again after all these years, but, you know, I'm married now. And well, I don't know, but I still kind of like you. And, and again, this is why I'm being careful not to spoil anything. How's that going to play out? But as you watch it, even if you kind of sort of know how it'll play out, just the fascination of, of the incremental building of, of storyline, of character. So I'll tell you, by the last, you know, 20 minutes to half hour, I was totally with it at that point. So I think it's actually one of the best films I've seen so far this year. And I'm assuming you share that feeling. I do. And I also think until something knocks it off its pedestal, this is the front runner for best foreign film for the year. It's, it's just yeah, so I think you're right. And it's a movie for grownups. I mean, we just talked about the audience for Indiana Jones. And I think very firmly that this movie is, is targeted to people like you and me, Mike, where for our students, our younger students, the idea that you could just lose track of somebody for 12 years is why don't you just look them up on the internet? <laughs> why haven't you found them on Facebook? I mean, that aspect of it, they don't go into at all, that these people are basically our age and could have found each other earlier. They leave that completely out, which I think kind of isolates them from a younger audience. And it's not like I think this is too adult for them or they couldn't imagine you know, losing touch with somebody and then you know, meeting them later. And what does that mean? I think that's kind of evergreen. And I think anybody could look ahead to think, well, what would it be later if I moved away or, you know, we had a fight or all the kinds of things that sort of interrupt a friendship. I don't think this is pitched at all towards younger people to be inclusive. It's very much our idea of the world where, you know, the internet came along later. I mean, did you think about well, that? I, you know, on, the, on the one hand, I agree with you in terms of the technology involved here and, and the audience demographic. But on the other hand, it's a film fundamentally, thematically about the nature of friendship. And that's something that's certainly evergreen and, and universal. And also of what if histories. Mm -hmm. And we all play that, you know, we play that game at, at uh, I won't say at any age, but if you think about the point of like where you went to high school or where you went to college, the friends you had, and people go off in different directions. You're absolutely right that people nowadays are more inclined to, if not necessarily connect, at least know how they would connect. Like, let me look her up on Facebook or something. So you at least have a sense of tracking. But I think it can happen in any age where you just go on with your life and certain people sort of drop to the side. And it could be years before you even thought of that person like hey i wonder whatever happened to nowadays it'd be unlikely you're right marie they'd like you know, 12 years ago by and like hey what happened to her but well, maybe 12 minutes ago by today mm -hmm. <laughs> i know what you're getting at well, but, seconds. I think, but i think the film can have a broader appeal just because of the sort of universality of, of the themes it's also very specific with some of the cultural references whether to um korea or, or to Canada slash the United States. And that's something that people can identify with nowadays because we are so multi-hyphenated as a society in a lot of ways. It could be anything from what you eat at the dinner table to, to how you address your friends. And those are things that I think people would have an interest in, even if it's not their own personal background per se. And one specific detail that's really tiny, so as a cinephile, I seized on it, is that one of the characters has a, a movie poster on the wall for Jacques Rivette's 1974 film, Celine and Julie Go Boating. And it's actually the, the female character, Nora's father, who has it. You don't need that in the film, but it's a wonderful grace note, because this film has the quality of the French New Wave in the sense of you know, it's a character study. And, and, and in fact, you know, I won't even call it a menage a trois because I think it's misleading under these circumstances. But but it is like, a you know, three principal characters tracking their lives over time. A lot of the time just spent in apartments, restaurants, walking on the street, talking, people talking, having meaningful contact and talking face to face, you know, when they really get to it. And one of the characters in the Jacques Rivette film actually says, your future is behind you. 
And that's the key quotation, you know, mm-hmm. your future is behind you. Because, you know, as, as you look ahead, uh, aren't you also looking back? What was my relationship like with this person when we were kids? And, and you know, what did it mean to me then? And, 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 you know, am I remembering it correctly? Am I reading too much into it? And in any event, can you simply pick up where you left off? Anytime you have a reunion like that, think about if, if you've gone to um, class reunions, whether high school, college, whatever, you know, years do go by before you're face to face with people, at least. And, and do you just pick up where you left off or do you find yourself looking down at the name tag like, oh, that's who it is. <laughs> he doesn't look the same now. And we won't go into the reasons why, but he looks a little different now. But they also have questions like that. You know, can you just simply pick up where you left off? There's the awkwardness of that. And I think the film captures that extremely well. It does. It, I think it does a lot of things really well. One of the best scenes is when the woman is talking to her husband and she basically says, yeah, I, he doesn't really miss me. He misses the crybaby that I used to be. And her husband says, you were a crybaby? It's one of these wonderful moments where you find out something about the person that you're with through something that they used to be. And the fact that she even revealed that was, I just thought, just such a great moment. So telling of how well, that marriage was really kind of working out for her. And I also wanted to mention, you know, that idea of losing the person that you used to be, I think comes out really clearly. But, you know, the one thing I would say I thought was a little bit disappointing was to assume that because they knew each other when they were younger, pre-puberty really, or just at the cusp, that the thing that is lost is this romance that could have been. When I thought a stronger case was could have been made about you know, friends that you make even when you're really young can still resonate with you later and has nothing to do with romance or regret that you didn't end up together. And they kind of touch on it with the title of the movie, which is Past Lives, because, you know, maybe in a different life, something was different and we, we would have worked out or maybe we're in a future version of this world, we will end up together. But I think that's sort of a disappointing idea that everything has to turn into a love relationship when I think the friendship the two had in the beginning was something worth cherishing. So, you know, you, your husband never has to be jealous. It's just somebody you knew who, you know, knew you when, and all of those kind of romantic politics, I didn't think even needed to be in there. Well, to pick up on your point, the film would be even stronger if in the childhood section, you know, they're, they're kids in, in Korea, if the, the pool of friends were a little wider, I think that's what you're getting at. Let's say you have a group of friends and and some of them are just friends, right? And if you if you reconnect with them, they're just kids that you see again after so many years. And they're not all prospective romantic partners. So I understand your point very well. But you know, cutting through that, the fact that these two are good friends, and one of them's going to be moving, and and one's staying behind. And when they part on the street as kids, the awkwardness of that. You know, do you hug? Do you shake hands? Do you just wave and say, "I'll see you later." How do you handle that? Because you may never see the other person again. I thought the film handled that really well, and and the sense that you know life. Um, can be a, a what-if exercise. It, it can be arbitrary in some ways. Like, for instance, when Nora, who's become a playwright, she meets her husband's because he's a writer. Like, they, they're at a writer's conference and all. But what if you had not gone to that writer's conference? Or what if you met another writer at the dinner table? I'm getting at the film mm-hmm. does have that quality. And they ask themselves, what really holds us together? Well, we met at this, you know, writer's club and writer's camp, and and, and we're both, you know, interested in the written word, and, and that sort of joins us together. But otherwise, they have very different backgrounds in terms of of, you know, Asian and, and, and North American and so on. So, so this, the film does raise those questions. I think you're right, Maria, it could have pushed a little further with that, but I think it pushes far enough to have us have the, the present conversation, have us talk about that topic. I think the film raises those questions. I think one of the things that 
film does a really lovely job of is convincing you that this might not have been, you know, the trajectory she thought things were going to go, but she ended up with the right guy. The scenes between her and her husband, I think, are magical. Well, they are magical, but also the fact that they don't know everything about each other. And that's yes. one of the bracing that, right, like, you know, it's like looking at a, a high school yearbook for your spouse. Like, well, you were dorky looking back then. but You were a crybaby? But you were a crybaby. You, cry you don't know the full story, do you? Because you weren't there. Whereas this childhood friend knows things you couldn't possibly know. And even in a long and happy marriage, not everything is, is confessed or related, right? And so I like the way the film handled that, like things you didn't know about your spouse. Mm -hmm. And that you couldn't know about your spouse, because some of the things that come out really, I think, in a very lovely way are just kind of the, you know, I used to be, I used to live in Korea. And now, you know, then I went to Canada and now I live in the United States. It's been a long time. But, you know, there is somebody I knew back in the day who really understands the part of me that remembers living in Korea. And, you know, your husband can be the greatest guy in the world. And they do make a case for him seeming like a really good guy. But he's never going to get that. And it's not that he's doing anything wrong. It's just not everybody can be everything to everybody. That's why when the childhood friends reunite in New York and they're talking, the husband is literally almost like pushed to the side at times because he can't mm -hmm. possibly share in that conversation. And he has the good smarts and the good manners to know that, that he should just like step aside occasionally, let them talk. And, and it shows you that even though she's happily married, these are relationships that are differently premised, if you will. One based on a childhood friendship, the other much more recent, you know, your, your current life or your new life. And yeah, everyone gets along, but it's not always easy or, or smooth because, you know, you're coming from different places in all sorts of ways. You know, what would be a great thing in, in the classroom, Mike, is if we showed this in world cinema, would be to then ask the students to discuss childhood friends that they had. You know, they may not have even thought about it. I mean, that's one of the nice things about it is it does kind of hark back to, you know, who who did you used to be and, you know, who were your friends then? And by the time you're in college, you're thinking about things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the kid I used to play with when I was eight or 10. And now, mm -hmm. like 10 years later, that seems like ancient history, doesn't it? And you might it not does. see that person anymore. So, yeah, I think it, it plays across generations really well. So that does bring us to the end of this episode, but don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atnhcc.podbean.com. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.